Well, I will extend uh, another welcome and greeting to you all. As I said, my name is Joe. I am one of the pastors here at Lynchburg City Church, and uh, I'm very glad that you are here, especially those of you who are new. Seriously, welcome. Um, we are in the book of Malachi. I will not give you quite the lengthy introduction that I did last week. If you want to hear that sermon, it's on SoundCloud. You just search Lynchburg City Church, and you can hear a full introduction to this book. The story of this book begins quite earlier. Like so many books in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, especially the minor prophets, they are directly or indirectly impacted by the Babylonian captivity. You wonder what, how Daniel got to the lion's den? Babylonian captivity, 605 B.C., as well as 597, 586, and 582. Four deportations to count. Of course, most people are aware of the 586 date because it was in 586 that the temple and Jerusalem were destroyed. It was cataclysmic, to say the least. Um, think 9-11, but the entire city of Manhattan. And then you begin to feel a little of what the people of Judah were feeling. And yet it was all because of their sin. The sin of God's people is why he called upon Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to be brought forth, to destroy the city, to execute judgment on his people because of their sin. And we fast forward. That was 586. 576, 566, 556, 546, 540, 539's top the clock. There is a new superpower in play. The Persian Empire is at its height. And they overthrow the Babylonians in 539. And a year after this, the ruler Cyrus issues a law in 538 BC, allowing the people of Judah, those who wish to return home, they may go. They may take the artifacts with them that Nebuchadnezzar had taken when he left Jerusalem so many years earlier, and he would even help provide the funds with a government subsidy, all according to Scripture. That in 538. Well, you would think that the first thing that the people would do upon arriving is rebuild the temple. It's the center of worship for the people. Considering why they were in Babylon in the first place, you would think that would be the top priority. But months go by. Years go by. They don't rebuild the temple. And every time they have a reason, it's not the right time. I don't have enough time. Like, Many of us in our day, well, next semester will be different. I'll, I'll have more time then. Well, once I finish this part of my life, okay, our, our intramural sports team are making a deep run to playoffs. I'm just, I got a lot going on. I, I got to catch up on, on, on my Hulu and my Netflix shows. But then, you know, I'll have time for the things of God and the people of God. And week after month after semester, and nothing changes. It's now been 18 years that they've been living there, and the temple lays in a heap of rubble that Nebuchadnezzar had left it back in 586. So in 520 B.C., God sends his servant Haggai 
to come to preach a series of sermons that essentially he said, hey, quit making excuses and get your crap together and rebuild the temple. God needs to be priority number one in your life, so make it happen. The people respond very positively. The temple gets rebuilt. Haggai comes and just kind of pumps them up, you might say. Well, it's been a while since Haggai and his motivational sermons and the people's zeal for the Lord has begun to wane. That was in 520. It's now 485 B.C., and there is a new leader in Persia. His name is Xerxes. And as the empire has expanded, so is the financial burden. An empire grows, well, you need money to help support it. The bigger it gets, the more money needed. And so Xerxes takes a different approach to taxation within the empire. He shifts the burden of taxation to non-ethnically Persian groups, the provinces, to bring in and fill the treasure chest of the Persians. Well, the people of Judah felt this, and they felt it severely. In fact, the effects can be recorded, are recorded in the fifth chapter of Nehemiah. There was severe poverty. This is all Nehemiah 5. There was severe poverty due to high taxes, inflation caused by Persian, Persian economic policies and famine, resulting in the confiscation of property, debt slavery at an unprecedented scale. Interest rates had risen from about 20% under Cyrus to now nearly 40 to 50% by the end of the 5th century. Things were kind of tough. And spiritual apathy sets in. Spiritual zeal is almost an afterthought. It's now been 80 years since Haggai came and preached some hard sermons to the people. The year is 460 B.C. And God sends his messenger Malachi to the scene. The first five verses, he talks about the amazing, powerful, electing, sovereign love of God for his people. And tonight, we see in verse 6, the story shifts. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, and we'll begin to unpack the text now. He says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Stop. Some of you, your sons. Is that not right? Yes, Malachi. Some of you are fathers, is that correct? Yes, Malachi. Others of you, you some of you are masters, is that not correct? Yes, Malachi. Servants? Yes. Good. Now, fathers, do you not expect your sons to honor you? To honor you? Yes, of course. Servants, do you not know that you need to honor your masters? Well, of course. I'm good, just, just so everyone is tracking that and understands that. So here's the thing that I'm trying to grasp. Does not the Lord also deserve praise and worship and honor? Does he not deserve those things as well? He says in verse 6, If I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? says the Lord of hosts to you. 
This wasn't a call to respect. It wasn't a call asking, do you respect the Lord or don't you? See, respect is politeness. Respect is you come into someone's house, you say, hey, do, you mind, do you want me to take off my shoes? That's respect. But fear results in awe and obedience, which is what they were seriously lacking. You don't show me honor, even though I too am a father. You don't show me fear, even though I too am a master. Like, does anybody have a problem with that? And he says, you priest, you despise my name. To despise to, is to, you could say another way, to show contempt for. It is when you despise something, you treat something as if it were insignificant or worthless. That They weren't taking God seriously. They considered service to him as unimportant, not really worth much of their time or trouble. It was the same attitude that Esau had in the 25th chapter of Genesis of his birthright. He despised it. He thought so little of it that he would trade it, something so valuable, for a bowl of soup. The object of their contempt is God's name. And his name here refers to his character. It refers to his nature. In in other words, what they knew about God, it did not impress them. It didn't impress them at all. It's, it's the difference between, and I like to ask this, do you, when you see Jesus, what do you see? Do you just see facts about him, memorized Sunday school answers? Is that what you know about Jesus? Or do you see the beauty of those facts? Is he breathtaking? Is he magnificent to you? Or is it just, yeah, I, I know that story. I heard that story. See, God was to them like a, a customer who comes in, maybe shabbily dressed. You just make the assumption, okay, that guy doesn't have any money. He's not going to make a purchase. And he was neglected. God was neglected. Some of you are doing this right now. Like you haven't been to church in a very long time. You haven't spent time in his word in what seems like forever. I would mention small groups, but you don't go, so why bother? Like that customer who comes in, you give him as little as attention as possible with the hope that he'll soon be on his way. Like, as long as you keep quiet, like, as long as you don't get in the way, okay, then we're okay, God. All the while, Israel continues to offer sacrifices in his name, to call upon his name, to bless Israel. The prophet Isaiah says it and describes it like this in the 29th chapter, in the 13th verse. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But how have we despised your name? Is the response the people give in verse 6. How have, we, how have we done this? Sure. Their, their response is a reaction of shock and unbelief. And so he begins to give the explanation in verse 7. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, well, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. The priests are 
claiming to not understand how their improper offerings would affect the Lord. So the Lord draws on a comparison. The comparison is an altar to a table and offerings, sacrifices to food. Okay, so, so see it? So we have altar and a dinner table. We have offerings, we've got food. So that's the, the parallel, that is the comparison he's going to use. And he continues this, this way of thinking into the next verse for a deeper explanation. And he says this in verse 8, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? The priest's job was to judge and determine the acceptability of the offerings. That was one of the things that they would do. This was all part of worship. They come, they bring the animal. The priest's job is to say, I think that sheep is missing a couple legs. Uh, it, it is? Okay. Yeah, you can't, you can't give that to God. Why? Because it sucks. <laughs> but they're just saying, oh yeah, that's fine. Yeah, go ahead. Next. Yeah, that, is, that, is that one alive? Is it? Yeah, I think I hear it breathing. Go ahead, next. Their, their job is to determine the acceptability. That was their responsibility, but they really could care less. They could care absolutely less about it. And so he draws up this imagery. He says, imagine that you're invited over to the governor's house for a dinner. I'll take it one step farther. Imagine if you get an invitation to a White House dinner. Now, I don't care what your political views are. That would be cool. Okay? You're going to have a special White House dinner. You're going to come over. I want you to bring something. Bring something with you. And so, he says, you bring something. You're going to bring something really good. You're going to bring something really, really great. You're going to do that. If you didn't, it would be because you despised him. Because you didn't really care for the governor's favor. Yet the very purpose of offering such gifts was to please the governor. But they're not doing that. But God's people here in this story, they have a greater respect for earthly rulers than they do for the Lord. They care more about earthly rulers and earthly relationships than they do their relationship with the Lord. It's amazing, because if you remember last week, it was all about God's sovereign, amazing, electing, undeserving love of His people. And that, that should make a profound difference in our lives. When you understand God's undeserving love that He has for you, it shouldn't make a difference to think that the God of the universe would send his son on a rescue mission. Born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, three days later rose from the grave, conquering sin, conquering death, proving who he claimed to be, that salvation 
is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone, and that true faith always involves repentance, a turning from our sin, a hatred for the things that God hates, a love for the things that God loves, it should make a profound difference in our lives. When you think about our undeserving love, when you think about if it wasn't for God's love, we would just be like Jacob's brother Esau. The love of God is amazing because we see ourselves as so undeserving. We see ourselves as so, so small and God is so, so big. Knowing and understanding and experiencing the love of God should impact every area of our life. In the hurts, in the pains, in the tragedies, in the arguments, in the difficulties, in every area. It should have stirred up their love for God, especially the priest. But their carelessness, their disobedience, it demonstrated their lack of love. They truly showed more respect, more honor, more fear to earthly leaders than to God. And God's not happy. The priests were conducting worship services. I say worship services all the while, obscuring God's character and misrepresenting it. So he says this in verse 9. And now, and now entreat or call upon the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? The prophet's saying, yeah, you go ahead, you keep beseeching, you keep calling on God. All the while, you're bringing him these pitiful offerings. He won't accept you. He's not going to respond favorably to you. Your governor would be insulted by such things. You really think God is going to accept these acts of worship that you've demonstrated? And some of you wonder why it seems like He doesn't answer your prayers. Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. This this reference to the temple. There was one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. The Lord is saying that their activity, their their worship, which is really just religious activity, but their, their worship is not only pointless, it's counterproductive, and it's making Him angry. God is angry with His people. Some of you, you come in here, and you're singing, and you're raising your hands in worship. In all actuality, you're only singing and worshiping yourselves. Because God's not in it. Because God is a holy God. And what you're doing, it's not worship for some of you. It's just religious activity. And He is furious with some of you. Verse 11. 
For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. That's amazing. Truly, if we take incense and offerings as figuratively, then we can see Malachi's prophecy being understood at least in a partial way in the present age. The fact that us Gentiles are here. That the church is here. And yet in a a more fuller way in the age to come at the return of Christ. He's saying, this is the response, people of Judah, that you should have right now, that they will have. You should have it. You don't. They will have it. And so he says this in verse 12. But you, you profane it. You profane my name when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. To profane something is to treat something as unholy. That is, to treat something as common and insignificant and worthless. They profane his name and also as the idea of bringing dishonor or disgrace by someone by associating their name with something that is shameful. Go back to the governor illustration that Malachi gives us. You bring, you, you get invited to the governor's house. You get invited to the White House dinner. And you come and you show up and you bring these gifts. And they're not really gifts. Just garbage. That governor would say, get those off my table. I don't want those on my table. I don't want that stuff that you brought in my house. I don't want that stuff associated with my name. So that's misrepresenting who I am. It's garbage. And that's what they're doing with their offerings. That's what some of us do in our lives. We we misrepresent him. We profane his name. And many times, how we live. We say, hey, I'm, I'm a Christian. And I'm thinking, really? What's the difference between you and everybody else? Because you're out having sex with people you're not married to. You're out getting plastered with people. You're out doing drugs. You're lying. You're cheating. You're misrepresenting Christ. You are bringing shame upon the name of Christ. You're... Oh, there he is. You profane his name. That's exactly what you're doing. Some of you, that's what you're doing in the very way that you live. They did it in the gifts that they brought. And the priest should have said, no, you're not offering that. That's, that's garbage. You, you're not offering that. We're not going to associate those sacrifices, those acts of worship with the Lord. And they profane His name. They bring disgrace upon it by associating shameful things with the Lord. Verse 13 says, But you say, Oh, what a weariness this is. And you, you, you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. 
You say, what a weariness this is. Or what a burden this, this is. The priests were tired of offering sacrifices to the Lord. It had become a nuisance to them. They said, oh, what a wearisome, what a, what a burden this is to do this. It's, it's such a nuisance. Are you like them? Are you like them? With church? It's wearisome. It's a nuisance. With small groups, with prayer, with reading the Bible, it's wearisome. It's a burden. It's a nuisance. Are you like them? With sacrificial giving? Some of you right now are saying, you don't go there. You don't talk about my money. (laughs) You talk about everything else. You don't talk about my money. That's mine! And other things are just, oh, they're all nuisances. Are you like them? Like the customer who comes into the store. Just as long as you stay out of the way, God, because I want to run my life the way I want to run it, and you, you just stay over there. When I need you, I'll call for you. Is the mentality that they have. What a wearisome this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick. It's been taken by violence. Some of these things, they ripped off from people. It doesn't even belong to them. Or is lame or is sick. And this you bring as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? You're joking if you think I'm going to accept that as a form of worship. Like you're kidding yourself right now. And this goes back to verse 9. When he says in verse 13, shall I accept that from your hand? Very similar sounding to how he says in verse 9. And now entreat or call upon the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. It's like the, the guy. I got a friend like this. Comes to church just enough, right? Once every six weeks. Once every six weeks or seven weeks, I'll, I'll see him pop his head in here. That's it. Um, religious activity. I mean, if you hooked, had him hooked up to an EKG, I mean, you, you'd wonder, like, is, is he breathing? Is he alive? Like, if you're trying, if you med people, like, you'd be like, I don't even know. Like, he doesn't have very strong vitals. But, oh, by the way, when he needs something, when he needs the Lord's favor, oh, Hey, can you pray for me? I've got this, I got this job coming up. Or, hey, um, I, I'm going on a date with this girl that I really want to go on. Can you just pray for God's favor there? Oh, man, religious activity is spiking on the charts. I mean, you think, I mean, you think he'd be running a marathon or something. Like, well, okay, yeah, there's, there's that spiritual activity. Oh, that, that's where it's been the whole time. And now he needs God as if it's this magic eight ball and I come or this ATM machine and I come because now I need you. You really expect God to show favor and to answer you? Like, this would be like a parent who rewards their child who's misbehaving and being disobedient and who just rewards them. If any parent loved their child, they wouldn't do that. Because by doing that, they are affirming that behavior. God's not going to listen to you. Some of you, you feel like, man, it feels like God's just so far away and he doesn't really listen to me. There may be a reason for that. There may be a reason for why it seems like he doesn't answer your prayers. See, the priests, their their worship here, it was nothing more than 
insincere religious activity. Nothing more than that. It was the opposite of what the Apostle Paul observed in the churches of Macedonia. I'll flip just for a second for the sake of illustration to 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter. If you want to know what right looks like, here's a great example. I tell a personal story about why Paul already did. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul observes something honestly just beautiful. I'm going to read just a couple of verses from here that I think are marvelous. And I think worthy of striving to be like. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, he says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Amazing. When they're taking the offering for the saints in Jerusalem who are very needy. Here are people that don't have a lot, but they give a lot because out of their abundance of joy. Verse 5. I like verse 5. 2 Corinthians 8, 5. I want you to like verse 5 too. I want you to strive to be verse 5, 2 Corinthians 8, 5, because it is so the opposite of the people that are getting ripped to pieces by Malachi. 2 Corinthians 8, 5, And this, not as we expected, but they, they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. First to the Lord usually isn't how it is. Oh, we say it is. God's number one. If I pulled you right now, everybody would put their hands up. Even the non-Christians in here. But it usually isn't that way. It's usually, well, kind of, number one, well, yeah, obviously God. But really, it's probably, I don't know, school, job, finances, relationships, and then Maybe a number two is intramural sports. Number three is, I got to have some stress relievers, Netflix, Hulu. Hulu Plus and Netflix, there we go. Okay. Um, oh, well, this girlfriend, this boyfriend, well, I don't have one. I'll put that on my wish list. There we go. That's five, six. Okay. Oh, got a little vacancy here in seven. Where's that, little, where's that God tap? Right there. Okay, there we go. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There we go. That is how... Many of us are. That is often how the order of importance goes. Oh, that we might be like the Macedonians who, not as we expected, but gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You say, how do I know? Like, Is there a way I can test it to know whether I really have a heart of worship? That I'm not just faking it. It's not just religious activity. Yes, yeah, 2 Corinthians 8.12 is a, it's a great little thermometer. For if the readiness is there or the willingness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. If the readiness is there, if the willingness is there, or we go to 2 Corinthians 9, 7. I love this verse. 
We're going to take offering at the end of the service. And 2 Corinthians 9, 7 is a beautiful verse because it says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I don't know. There is a type of giving that God does not like. He loves a cheerful giver. He does not love the giver who gives reluctantly or under compulsion or begrudgingly, I've got to give money. That we might be like the Macedonians, who in their abundance of joy, they didn't have much, but they gave what they have. Not because it was their duty, not because they were checking the box, but because it was out of their abundance of joy. They were eager, they were ready, they were willing, as 2 Corinthians 8.12 says. Or as Psalms 100 verse 2 says, Serve the Lord with gladness. There is a type of service that God does not like. We have seen that type of service in the first chapter of Malachi. Serve the Lord with gladness, not with grumbling. I can't believe I have to serve him. I've got to go to church tonight. I have to go to a small group tonight. That doesn't honor God. That doesn't glorify God. That doesn't make much of God. That's why you see some of these people walking around with Lynchburg City Church t-shirts and on the back it says Christian Hedonist. And by that, there's a couple different definitions that I'll, I use. John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Someone in the back knows it. Thank you, Justin. Or as the ancient Bible teachers would say, for the chief end of God, excuse me, for the chief end of man is to glorify God. That's one. The chief end of man is to glorify God. Two, by enjoying him forever. Why? Because that makes God look great. If you're hanging out with your buddy, you're playing games, okay? And you realize, oh man, uh, I gotta go pick up my girlfriend. Oh, you do? And having this conversation. Yeah, yeah, I do. Dude, seriously, if I could get out of this, I totally would. I've used every single excuse in the book not to hang out with her this last week, but now it's Sunday night, and i got to go pick her up. So, um, gosh, seriously, I would much rather stay here and hang out and play with you. Like, if I didn't know that guy's girlfriend, I'd probably be like, dude, like, why are you dating her? You should drop her like she's hot right now because she sounds terrible. <laughs> like, I, I don't know her, but I, I don't want to know her. Like, she sounds miserable versus this other scenario and the guy is there and he's playing and it's like oh man i i gotta go, i gotta go pick up my girlfriend from work or whatever it is and i'll be like oh, okay you know oh dude i'm so pumped because we're going out on a date tonight it's gonna be awesome because dude she's awesome i told you how awesome she is yeah like 20 times a day okay well she's so awesome and it's gonna be so great it's gonna be sweet we're gonna have such a fun time and i've got this and we're gonna do this because when i hang out with her man i just i, I get whoo man i get whoo like, it just pumps me up. I love hanging out with her. Now, which one of those scenarios, um, tell you what, and, and the guy, I'm getting ahead of myself, the guy in this scenario, he'd probably say, dude, I don't know your girlfriend, but do you have, does she have any friends like her? Because I'd like to meet them, if you could make that happen. Why? Because the second story makes much of her. It's like, whoa, man, I want to meet her. She sounds awesome. She sounds great. The girl in the first story, nope, don't want to meet her at all. Man, the second girl, man, she, whoo, I'd like to know her. I want to know him. I want Jesus and the people. Their worship is just religious activity. It doesn't make much of God because their heart's not in it. 
I don't want to meet that God. He sounds awful. He sounds terrible. No. May we be like the Macedonians who were ready, who were willing, who were eager, who God was first, who in their abundance of joy gave even though they were impoverished themselves. And yet that is not how these people are acting. So he says this in verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. This is an indictment that is directed against those making the offerings, not just the priest here, but those directly making the offerings. It has to do with uh, vows and offerings, and you can read more about how that works in Leviticus 27, 9 to 10, Numbers 30, verse 2, and Deuteronomy 23, 21 to 23. But essentially, this is what's taking place. The guy is saying, God, please, if you answer my prayer, I promise I'll give you the best I've got, whatever that is. And then God answers his prayer, and then he conveniently reneges and changes the deal and offers God something blemished, offers God garbage. And so he says, Cursed be that cheat. In other words, God is going to deliver him over to misfortune. Misfortune. Some of you, it's not worship. It's just cheating God. It's just religious activity. I'm not saying that every bad thing that happens in your life is a direct result of a sucky, terrible relationship with God that you're faking. But I'm also not ruling it out. Because Malachi didn't rule it out. And so he says this in closing. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. We think sometimes of the church. The ultimate goal of the church. You might be tempted to say missions. That would be the incorrect answer as far as the sermon is concerned tonight, which has a strong emphasis on genuine worship. John Piper says this, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Oh, that we might repent of the commonalities that some of us share with the priests and the people of Judah, that God might be so gracious to us to increase our joy in Him so that we might be like the Macedonians who gave themselves first to the Lord. Holy Father, we love You. We love You, we praise You, we worship You. Forgive us for when our worship turns into a religious activity. Forgive us 
when you become an afterthought, when you cease to be the priority that you should be, oh, that you would increase our joy in you so that we might make you look great. Not out of a sense of duty or obligation, but like the Macedonians, out of our abundance of joy in you. That's what I want for the people in here tonight. That's what I want for myself, and I cannot make that happen. You and you alone, I pray that you would increase our joy in you. Make us like the Macedonians. Show us the areas in our life that we share way too much in common with the people of Judah here and the priest. Grant us a heart of repentance. And help us, God, to genuinely and truthfully make you look good in our worship. I don't want to cheat you. Forgive me for the moments when I do. I pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In your name, Jesus, amen.